are listening to the Mystical City of God in a Year podcast. I'm Father Edward Looney, and throughout the year I am reading and reflecting on the four volumes, over 2,500-page work by the Venerable Maria Vagrida. If you would like to discuss today's readings, just head on over to Facebook, and there you'll be able to find the Mystical City of God in a Year podcast group and be able to share your own thoughts and reflections about today's readings with others who are listening and following along. Let us now thank God for the life of Venerable Maria Vagrida. Almighty God, you will that all people know the saving power of Jesus' name. Throughout time, you have sent missionaries to your people who have proclaimed the good news. We thank you for sending Sor Maria to the Humano people and planting the seeds of the gospel in their heart and in our land. She taught them the good news and prepared them for baptism. We look to her example in holy life and wish to be taught by her today. Sor Maria, teach us how to pray and meditate. Teach us how to imitate the virtues of Our Lady. Teach us the mysteries of our faith. Almighty God, stir a flame in our hearts the same missionary fervor of Sor Maria, so we may be as emboldened as she was to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Today is day number 269. We are reading from Volume 3, Book 6, Chapter 26, Paragraphs 755 to 765. Chapter 26. The Resurrection of Christ our Savior and His Apparition to His Most Blessed Mother in Company with the Holy Fathers of Limbo. 755. The divine soul of Christ, our Redeemer, remained in limbo from half-past three of Friday afternoon until after three of the Sunday morning following. During this hour, he returned to the sepulcher as the victorious prince of the angels and of the saints, whom he had delivered from those nether prisons as spoils of his victory, and as an earnest of his glorious triumph over the chastised and prostrate rebels of hell. In the sepulcher were many angels as its guard, venerating the sacred body united to the divinity. Some of them, obeying the command of their queen and mistress, had gathered the relics of the sacred blood shed by her divine son, the particles of flesh scattered about, the hair torn from his divine face and head, and all else that belonged to the perfection and integrity of his most sacred humanity. On these, the mother of prudence lavished her solicitous care, The angels took charge of these relics, each one filled with joy as being privileged to hold the particles which she was able to secure. Before any change was made, the body of the Redeemer was shown to the Holy Fathers, in the same wounded, lacerated, and disfigured state in which it was left by the cruelty of the Jews. Beholding him thus disfigured in death, the patriarchs and prophets and other saints adored him, and again confessed him as the incarnate word, who had truly taken upon himself our infirmities and sorrows, Isaiah 53.4, and paid abundantly our debts, satisfying in his innocence and guiltlessness for what we ourselves owe to the justice of the Eternal Father. There did our first parents, Adam and Eve, see the havoc wrought by their disobedience, the priceless remedy it necessitated, the immense goodness and mercy of the Redeemer, as they felt the effects of his copious redemption in the glory of the souls they praised anew the omnipotent and saint of saints, who had, with such marvelous wisdom, wrought such a salvation. 756. Then, in the presence of all those saints, 
through the ministry of those angels, were united to the sacred body all the relics which they had gathered, restoring it to its natural perfection and integrity. In the same moment, the Most Holy Soul reunited with the body, giving it immortal life and glory. Instead of the winding sheets and the ointments in which it had been buried, it was clothed with the four gifts of glory, namely with clearness, impassibility, agility, and subtlety. John 19.40 These gifts overflowed from the immense glory of the soul of Christ into the sacred body. Although these gifts were due to it as a natural inheritance and participation from the instant of its conception, because from the very moment his soul was glorified and his whole humanity was united to the divinity, yet they had been suspended in their effects upon the purest body in order to permit it to remain passable and capable of meriting for us our own glory. In the resurrection, these gifts were justly called into activity in the proper degree, corresponding to the glory of his soul and to his union with the divinity, as in the glory of the most holy soul of Christ our Savior, is incomprehensible and ineffable to man. It is also impossible entirely to describe in our words or by our examples the glorious gifts of his deified body, for in comparison to its purity, crystal would be obscure. The light inherent and shining forth from his body so far exceeds that of the others, as the day does the night, or as many sums the light of one star. And all the beauty of the creatures, if it were joined, would appear ugliness in comparison with his, nothing else being comparable to it in all creation. 757. The excellence of these gifts in the resurrection were far beyond the glory of his transfiguration or that manifested on other occasions of the kind mentioned in this history. For on these occasions he received it transitorily and for special purposes, while now he received it in plenitude and forever. Through impassibility his body became invincible to all created power, since no power can ever more or change him. By subtlety, the gross and earthly matter was so purified that it could now penetrate other matter like a pure spirit. Accordingly, he penetrated through the rocks of the sepulchre without removing or displacing them, just as he had issued forth from the womb of his blessed mother. Agility so freed him from the weight and slowness of matter that it exceeded the agility of the immaterial angels, while he himself could move about more quickly than they as shown in his apparitions to the apostles and on other occasions. The sacred wounds which had disfigured his body now shone forth from his hands and feet and side, so refulgent and brilliant that they added a most entrancing beauty and charm. In all this glory and heavenly adornment, the Savior now arose from the grave, and in the presence of the saints and patriarchs, he promised universal resurrection in their own flesh and body to all men, and that they, moreover, as in effect of his own resurrection, should be similarly glorified. As an earnest and as a pledge of the universal resurrection, the Lord commanded the souls of many saints there present to reunite with their bodies and raise up to immortal life. Immediately this divine command was executed, and their bodies arose, as is mentioned by St. Matthew, in anticipation of this mystery. Matthew 27.52 Among them was St. Anne, St. Joseph, and St. Joachim, 
and others of the ancient fathers and patriarchs who had distinguished themselves in the faith and the hope of the Incarnation, and had desired and prayed for it with greater earnestness to the Lord. As a reward for their zeal, the resurrection and the glory of their bodies was now anticipated. 7.58 Oh, how powerful and wonderful, how victorious and strong, appeared even now this line of Judah, the son of David. None ever woke from sleep so quickly as Christ from death, Psalm 3.4. At his imperious voice, the dry and scattered bones of the ancient dead were joined together, and the flesh, which had long ago turned to dust, was united to the bones, renewed their former life, and adorned by the gifts of glory, communicated to it by the life-restoring soul. In one instant, all these saints gathered around their Savior, more refulgent and brilliant than the sun, pure, transparent, beauteous, and agile, fit to follow him everywhere, and by their own good fortune, they now confirm the prophecy of Job that in our own flesh and with our own eyes and not with those of others, we shall see our Redeemer for our consolation. Of all these mysteries, the great Queen of Heaven was aware, and she participated in them from her retreat in the Cenacle. In the same instant in which the Most Holy Soul of Christ entered and gave life to his body, the joy of her Immaculate Soul, which I mentioned in the foregoing chapter, as being restrained and, as it were, withheld, overflowed into her immaculate body. And this overflow was so exquisite in its effects that she transformed from sorrow to joy, from pain to delight, from grief to ineffable jubilation and rest. It happened that just at this time the evangelist John, as had done on the previous morning, stepped in to visit her and console her in her bitter solitude. And thus, unexpectedly, in the midst of splendor and glory, met her, whom he had before scarcely recognized on account of her overwhelming sorrow. The apostle now beheld her with wonder and deepest reverence, and concluded that the Lord had risen since his blessed mother was thus transfigured with joy. 7.59 In this new joy and under the divine influences of her supernatural vision, the great lady began to prepare herself for the visit of the Lord, which was never at hand. While eliciting acts of praise and in her canticles and prayers, she immediately felt within her a new kind of jubilation and celestial delight. Reaching far beyond the first joy and corresponding in a wonderful manner to the sorrows and tribulations she had undergone in the Passion, and this new favor was different and much more exalted than the joys overflowing naturally from her soul into her body. Moreover, she perceived within herself another third and still more different effect, implying new divine favors. Namely, she felt infused into her being the heavenly light heralding the advent of beatific vision, which I will not here explain, since I have descanted on it in the first part. I merely add here that the queen on this occasion received these divine influences more abundantly and in a more exalted degree, for now the passion of Christ had gone before, and she had acquired the merits of this passion. Hence, the consolations from the hands of her divine Son corresponded to the multitude of her sorrow. 760. The Blessed Mary being thus prepared, Christ our Savior, arisen and glorious in the company of all the saints and patriarchs, made his appearance. The ever-humble queen prostrated herself upon the ground and adored her divine Son, 
and the Lord raised her up and drew her to himself. In this contact, which was more intimate than the contact with the humanity, and the wounds of the Savior sought by the Magdalene, the Virgin Mother participated in an extraordinary favor, which she alone, as exempt from sin, could merit. Although it was not the greatest of the favors she attained on this occasion, yet she could not have received it without failing of her faculties, if she had not been previously strengthened by the angels and by the Lord himself. This favor was that the glorious body of the Son so closely united itself to that of his purest mother, that he penetrated into it, or she into his, as when, for instance, a crystal globe takes up within itself the light of the sun, and is saturated with the splendor and beauty of its light. In the same way, the body of Most Holy Mary entered into that of her divine Son, by this heavenly embrace. It was, as it were, the portal of her intimate knowledge concerning the glory of the Most Holy Soul and body of her Lord. As a consequence of these favors constituting higher and higher degrees of ineffable gifts, the spirit of the Virgin Mother rose to the knowledge of the most hidden sacraments. In the midst of them she heard a voice saying to her, My beloved, ascend higher. By the power of these words, she was entirely transformed and saw the divinity clearly and intuitively, wherein she found complete, though only temporary, rest and reward for all her sorrows and labors. Silence alone here is proper, since reason and language are entirely inadequate to comprehend or express what passed in the Blessed Mary during this beatific vision, the highest she had until then enjoyed. Let us celebrate this day in wonder and praise with congratulations and loving, humble thanks for what she then merited for us and for her exaltation and joy. 761. For some hours, the heavenly princess continued to enjoy the essence of God, with her divine son participating now in his triumph, as she had in his torments. Then, by similar degrees, she again descended from this vision and found herself, in the end, reclining on the right arm of the most sacred humanity, and regaled in other ways by the right hand of his divinity. Canticle 2.6 She held sweetest converse with her son concerning the mysteries of his passion and of his glory. In these conferences, she was again inebriated with the wine of love and charity, which now she drank unmeasured from the original font. All that a mere creature can receive was conferred upon the Blessed Mary on this occasion. For according to our way of conceiving such things, the divine equity wished to compensate the injury. Thus, I must call it because I cannot find a more proper word, which a creature so pure and immaculate had undergone, in suffering for the sorrows and torments of the passion. For as I have mentioned many times before, she suffered the same pains as her son, and now in this mystery she was inundated with a proportionate joy and delight. 7.62 Then, still remaining in her exalted state, the great lady turned to the holy patriarchs and all the just, recognizing them and speaking to each in succession, praising the Almighty in his liberal mercy to each one of them. She was filled with a special delight in speaking to her parents, St. Joachim and Anne with her spouse, St. Joseph, with St. John the Baptist, and with them she conversed more particularly than with the patriarchs and prophets and with the first parents, Adam and Eve. 
All of them prostrated themselves before the heavenly lady, acknowledging her as the mother of the Redeemer, of the world, as the cause of their rescue, and the coadjutrix of their redemption. The divine wisdom impelled them thus to venerate and honor her, but the queen of all virtues and the mistress of humility prostrated herself on the ground and reverenced the saints according to their due. This the Lord permitted, because the saints, although they were inferior in grace, were superior in their state of blessedness, endowed with imperishable and eternal glory, while the mother of grace was yet in mortal life, and a pilgrim, and had not yet assumed the state of fruition. The presence of Christ our Savior continued during all the conference of Mary with the Holy Fathers. The most blessed Mary invited all the angels and saints there present to praise the victor over death, sin, and hell. Whereupon all sang new songs, psalms, hymns of glory, and magnificence, until the hour arrived when the risen Savior was to appear in other places, as I shall relate in the following chapter. Instruction which the Great Lady Most Holy Mary gave me. 763. My daughter, rejoice in thy very anxiety of not being able to explain in words what thy interior faculties perceive concerning the exalted mysteries recorded in thy writing. To acknowledge oneself conquered by such sovereign sacraments as these must be looked upon as a victory for creatures and as redounding to the glory of God and immortal flesh still more. I felt the pains of my divine Son, and although I did not lose my life, I endured the agonies of death mysteriously. Therefore, I experienced in myself also this wonderful and mystical resurrection to a most exalted state of grace and activity. The essence of God is infinite, and although the creature can participate in it so highly, yet there remains much to understand, love and joy, in order that now thou mayest, by the help of thy understanding, trace something of the glory of Christ my Son, of my own and of the saints. I wish to give thee some rules by which thou canst pass on from the consideration of the gifts of the glorified body to those of the soul. Thou already knowest that the gifts of the soul are vision, comprehension, and fruition, while thou hast already mentioned those of the body as being clearness, impassibility, subtlety, and agility. 7.64 Each of these gifts are correspondingly augmented in him, who in the state of grace performs the least meritorious work, even if it to be no more than removing a straw or giving a cup of water for the love of God. For each of the most insignificant works, the creature gains an increase of these gifts, an increase of clearness exceeding many times the sunlight, and added to its state of blessedness an increase of impassibility, by which man recedes from human and earthly corruption, farther than what all created efforts and strength could ever effect in resisting or separating itself from such infirmity or changefulness. An increase of subtlety by which he advances beyond all that could offer it resistance and gains new power of penetration. An increase of agility, surpassing all the activity of birds, of winds, and all other active creatures, such as fire and the elements tending to their center. From this increase of the gifts of the body merited by good works, thou wilt understand the augmentation of the gifts of the soul. For those of the body are derived, then those of the soul, and correspond with them. 
In the beatific vision, each merit secures greater clearness and insight into the divine attributes and perfections than that acquired by all the doctors and enlightened members of the Church. Likewise, the gift of apprehension or possession of the divine object is augmented, for the security of the possession of the highest and infinite good makes the tranquility and rest of its enjoyment more estimable than if the soul possessed all that is precious and rich, desirable and worthy of attainment, and all creation, even if possessed all at one time. Fruition, the third gift of the soul, on account of the love with which man performs the smallest acts, so exalts the degrees of fruitional love, that the greatest love of men here on earth can never be compared thereto, nor can the delight resulting therefrom ever be compared with all the delights of this mortal life. 765. Elevate therefore now thy thoughts, my daughter, and from these wonderful rewards gained by one little deed done for God, Consider what shall be the lot of the saints, who, for the love of God, have performed such heroic and magnificent works, and have suffered such cruel torments and martyrdom, as are known in the Church of Christ. And if these things happen in mere men, subject to faults and imperfections that retard merit, imagine, as far as thou canst, the exaltation of my divine Son." then thou wilt feel how limited is human capacity, especially in mortal life, to comprehend worthily this mystery and to conceive in a becoming manner such greatness. The most holy soul of my Lord was united substantially to the divinity on on account of this hypostatic union. The ocean of his divinity necessarily communicated itself to his divine and human personality, beatifying it as participating in the very essence of God in an ineffable manner. Although his glory depended not on merit, since it was given to him as consequent upon the hypostatical union from the first instant of his conception of my womb, yet the works of the thirty-three years of his life, his being born in poverty, living in labor, loving as a pilgrim, operating in all the virtues, redeeming the human race, founding the church and the doctrines of the faith, all this demanded that the glory of his body be measured by that of his soul." And therefore his greatness is ineffable and immense, to be manifested only in external life, in connection with the magnificent exaltation of my divine Son. The right hand of the Almighty wrought also in me effects proportionate to a mere creature, and in them I forgot all the tribulations and sorrows of the Passion. Similar was the lot of the fathers of Limbo and the other saints, When they received their rewards, I forgot the bitterness and labors I have suffered, for the great joy drove out pain, though I never lost from view what my son had suffered for the human race. This concludes our reading today for day number 269. We've been reading from volume 3, book 6, chapter 26, paragraphs 755 to 765. Today's reading focuses on the resurrection of Jesus, and we get some little facts about the resurrection. For example, accordingly, he penetrated through the rocks of the sepulcher without removing or displacing them, just as he had issued forth from the womb of his most blessed mother. So here's that connection between Jesus being born, the perpetual virginity of Our Lady being intact, and then that of the resurrection. We also learned that 
Jesus appears to Our Lady. Our Lady sees him. And that she sees Joseph. She sees Jochum and Anne and the other fathers and patriarchs as well. So bringing them forth from that place of waiting to that promised land now. The demeanor of Our Lady changes from sorrow to joy, which is one of the reasons why St. John knows that Jesus has risen, because he sees the joy of Our Lady. The apostle now beheld her with wonder and deepest reverence and concluded that the Lord had risen since his Blessed Mother was thus transfigured with joy. What we hear today of the resurrection of Jesus is something quite marvelous. And the events that happen in our reading today are just worthy, I think, of our imagination. That we can really picture this all taking place. It was St. Ignatius in his spiritual exercises that asked and brought a retreatant to meditate on did Mary receive a visit from Jesus after the resurrection? And today, our reading resoundingly says yes. I'm Father Edward Looney, and throughout the year, I'm reading and reflecting on the four volumes of the mystical city of God. I'm grateful you joined me today, and I hope that you join me again tomorrow. Until then, may God bless you, and Mary pray for you.